I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 17, The Scholastic Method. In such cases, one should use arguments which encourage the truth to grow, to show how what is being said is true. If the master is content merely to present the solution to the question in the form of bald statements from authorities, the listener will admittedly learn what the truth is, but his scholarship and his understanding will have gained nothing, and he will leave the disputation empty. St. Thomas Aquinas, circa 1256. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Over the last few episodes, we have looked broadly at the development of medieval European intellectual thought since the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Taking its lead from St. Augustine, the Latin West turned its back on reason and elevated faith. With a mixture of Christian mysticism and Neoplatonism, it was understood that not all things could be known. Those things could only be left to faith and the authority of the church fathers. Reason only applied to things that were already understood. But there was a fundamental shift at the end of the 11th century. Led by thinkers like Pierre Abelard, reason was making its return. It is through reason that we can come to understand God's creation, and it is through reason that God's truth is revealed. The need to reconcile Aristotle, Plato, and Christian faith was the driving force behind a new way of learning and a new way of thinking. One of the popular misconceptions about scholasticism is that it is a philosophy. Above all else, scholasticism is a methodology. It can be applied equally to philosophy, theology, law, or even science. It is a method on how to arrive at an agreed truth. At its core, it is about logic, argumentation, and persuasion. The 12th century saw a significant effort by European scholars to search out new works of classical antiquity. They were keenly interested in finding the Church Fathers' Greek texts, translating Jewish teachings from Hebrew, and Islamic religious texts. They also kept an eye out for scientific and philosophical works. At this point, most scholars had little interest in classical literature or history. The main destinations were those areas, especially in Southern Europe, still occupied or had been recently occupied by the Muslims. This included Spain and Sicily. From these great translation efforts, formerly unknown works of Aristotle were rediscovered. 
One of those translators was a cleric simply known as James of Venice. Not much is known of who this person was outside of his translations. He did work extensively in Constantinople and translated many of Aristotle's works. For this, he is often referred to as the first systematic translator of Aristotle since Boethius. Sometime between 1125 to 1150, James of Venice translated Aristotle's Posterior Analytics. James of Venice's translation of the Posterior Analytics would make complete, for the first time since the end of the Roman Empire, Aristotle's work known as the Organon. The Organon would form the foundation of the so-called New Logic, the basis of the scholastic method. Organon comes from the Greek meaning instrument or tool. The Organon is a collection of six works on the subject of logic by Aristotle. It was the followers of Aristotle that gave it that name. The order of the works is not chronological, but was chosen to reflect a well-structured system. The arrangement was set around 40 BCE. Boethius had translated five of the six works. These, in their proper order, are categories, on interpretation, prior analytics, topics, and on sophistical refutations. We spent some time discussing the categories in episode 15. James of Venice added the posterior analytics, which comes after the prior analytics, to make the work whole again. Scholasticism is characterized by dialectic, syllogistic reasoning, and deduction. Dialectic is a form of reasoning that involves the back-and-forth argument between opposing sides of a question. This exchange is meant to lead to a better understanding of a concept or to synthesize differing viewpoints. In a structured dialogue, two sides present differing perspectives, challenge each other's assumptions, explore contradictions and inconsistencies, and reconcile the conflict. For example, Alice might argue that if people are not free to do what they want, then they are not really free at all. Bob might respond by pointing out that if people are free to do whatever they want, they might harm others or act in ways that are not in line with their own long-term goals. As they continue discussing their different perspectives, they might eventually arrive at a synthesis that incorporates both viewpoints. For example, they might agree that freedom means having the ability to make choices that align with one's values and goals, but that these choices should not harm others or infringe on their freedom. Dialectic necessitated the skill of persuasion. The goal was to get your opponent to admit to the validity of certain propositions and then argue from these until your opponent capitulated. Aristotle, in the topics, 
lays out the different types of argument which can be employed and how to choose a suitable thesis, that is, a proposition to be defended. Related to this was Aristotle's on sophistical refutations. In this work, Aristotle discusses confusing one's opponent with statements that seem correct, but on further reflection, are absurd. Aristotle hadn't intended this to be a skill to be learned, but more to demonstrate how we can deceive ourselves and others, even unintentionally. It shows the pitfalls in the use of language and ways of thinking. But this became a discipline within medieval philosophy and was the subject of intense study. It was called sophistica, the art of sophistry. In the prior and posterior analytics, Aristotle turns from debate to formal logic and scientific thought. For now, we're going to focus on Aristotle's logic as it was the primary tool of the scholastic. We will return to Aristotle's impact on the development of science in a future episode somewhere down the road. The key concept here is the idea of a syllogism. A syllogism is a logical argument that applies deductive reasoning to draw a conclusion based on two premises. It consists of three parts, a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. The major premise is a general statement or proposition, while the minor premise is a specific statement related to the major premise. The conclusion is a logical consequence of the major and minor premises. For example, here is a classic syllogism. Major premise, all men are mortal. Minor premise, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. This syllogism is deductive. The conclusion necessarily follows from the premises. If the premises are true, then the conclusion must also be true. Syllogisms can have different forms, but always involve two premises and a conclusion. They can help clarify and test an argument's logic and are often used as a foundation for more complex forms of reasoning. All this coincided with the advent of the university. It was in the university that scholasticism would take root. The application of the method can be seen in changes in the university classroom. The model was no longer the teacher simply lecturing to passive students. Debate between teacher and student would become an integral part of learning. The Lectio still existed. This was simply the teacher reading a text and providing commentary on it. Added to this was the disputatio, the disputation. In this format, a question was proposed ahead of time. 
The debate took the form of a dialectic where the teacher and students argued from opposing positions. The disputation allowed students to show off their argumentation, sophistry, and syllogistic reasoning skills. They demonstrated their mastery of content by citing proper authoritative texts. One of the other masters would cut off the debate before it sank into hair splitting and nitpicking. The master would summarize the arguments and present a solution. Often these disputations were written down, edited, and then circulated, giving rise to a new genre of literature called the Questio Disputata. Another form of the disputation was the Disputatio de Quadlibet. In these, questions were not prepared ahead of time. Questions were impromptu and offered by the audience of the debate. Topics could range from deep philosophical considerations, such as the nature of being, to the trivial and ridiculous. It could be from these that we get the popular notion that scholastics were concerned with trivial matters, such as the number of angels on a pin. In many cases, these were exercises in showmanship. It was a way to show off one's skills as a debater and a logician. The goal oftentimes was to trip up the respondent, either out of malice or just pure fun. People outside the university often attended these free-for-all disputations, including local authorities and other notables. Questions on some occasions had relevance to contemporary issues. Outside the classroom, the scholastic method was applied to the formal study of texts to better understand the meaning or reconcile it to other works. A particular book by an approved author the octor was chosen as the subject of study. These octors included Aristotle, St. Augustine, and other church fathers, Plato, Boethius, and the Bible. The book would be read thoroughly and critically using Abelard's blueprint for evaluation. Sources like church councils, papal letters, and commentaries would be consulted. Where all these sources disagreed would be written down in snippets or as individual sentences. Then dialectic would be employed to reconcile all these differences. This was done through the understanding of word meanings and by logical analysis. Even in the early 13th century, there was some resistance to accepting Aristotle. Many Catholic authorities discredited him and saw his reliance on logic and reason as contradictory to orthodoxy. If he was to be fully accepted, he needed to be made compatible with Christian doctrine. Albertus Magnus of Cologne was the first to attempt to give Aristotle a truly Christian facade. For Albertus, scientific exploration was of value unto itself. Those scientific findings can never conflict with those of faith. Taking his cue from Islamic philosophers, he showed that Aristotle needn't be feared 
and that reason and faith would reach harmony in the knowledge of God. But it would be his student, St. Thomas Aquinas, who would achieve the synthesis of the philosopher, as Aristotle had become known, and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Thomas Aquinas was born near Aquino, Italy in 1225. This area of southern Italy was part of the kingdom of Sicily. His father was of the local nobility, and his uncle was the abbot of the original Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino. And as a younger son of aristocracy, Aquinas was expected to follow his uncle and become a Benedictine monk. He began his education at the monastery early on, and at 16, he began his studies at the recently established University of Naples. He became exposed to a range of secular works by both Jewish and Islamic philosophers. And it is here that he discovers Aristotle. While attending the school at Naples, Aquinas would also be introduced to a relatively new religious order. The Dominicans, along with the Franciscans, broke the traditional monastic model. They traveled preaching and living off the charity of others rather than hiding behind monastic walls and accumulating wealth. From the start, the Dominicans developed a reputation for learning and teaching. It was this, perhaps, that drew Aquinas to the Dominicans. His family was not pleased when he announced that he wished to join the order. His family did all they could to prevent him from entering, including imprisoning him at a family estate. Aquinas escaped and headed to Paris, where the Dominican teachers gave him refuge. Recognizing his abilities, they sent him in 1244 to study in Cologne under Albertus Magnus, who was the most prominent teacher of the order at that moment. After gaining his license to teach, Aquinas spent nearly a decade traveling throughout Italy, along with a stay at the papal court. He was a prodigious worker and writer. He wrote sermons, disputations, and books between preaching and advising pontiffs and kings. And it was during this time that he would begin the work he is best known for, the Summa Theologica. The Summa is an encyclopedic attempt to gather all the knowledge about Christian theology. It would be a work left unfinished at Aquinas' death in 1274. The work is divided into three parts in the format of Peter Lombard's sentences. Across these three parts, there are 38 main sections called tractates. These are subdivided into questions, which are further divided into articles. There are 631 questions in total, divided into nearly 3,000 articles that discuss over 10,000 different opinions. 
the articles take on a format derived from Averroes, the 12th century Islamic polymath. Each article begins with a series of objections, followed by a short counterstatement, starting with the phrase, on the contrary. In this statement, Aquinas references in an authoritative text from Scripture, the Church Fathers, or Aristotle. Aquinas follows with his argument, I answer that. He ends with individual replies to the objections. For example, in Part 3, Question 40 of Christ's Manner of Life, Article 3, Whether Christ Should Have Led a Life of Poverty in This World, we are first presented with a series of objections. For instance, Objection 1, quote, Christ should have embraced the most eligible form of life which is a mean between riches and poverty. Therefore, Christ should have led a life not of poverty, but of moderation, end quote. A counterstatement is given by referring to Matthew 8.20. Quote, On the contrary, it is written, The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. As though he were to say, as Jerome observes, Why desirest thou to follow me for the sake of riches and worldly gain, since I am so poor that I have not even the smallest dwelling place, and I am sheltered by a roof that is not mine? The argument is made, quote, It was fitting for Christ to lead a life of poverty in this world, end quote, for four reasons. The article then expands on these reasons in detail. Aquinas's reply to the above objection is that, quote, those who wish to live virtuously need to avoid abundance of riches and beggary, but voluntary poverty is not open to this danger. And such was the poverty chosen by Christ. End quote. The Summa Theologica is the grand synthesis. One commentator said that Aquinas converted Aristotle to Christianity and performed the baptism himself. Yet it can be also noted that Aquinas was converted to Aristotle. The result was the establishment of Aristotle as the authority. It would become so that Aristotle was indistinguishable from Christianity. Criticized during his lifetime, Aquinas would influence Catholic doctrine he would see a renewed appreciation in the Catholic Church of the 19th and 20th centuries. St. Thomas Aquinas is seen as the pinnacle of scholastic thought. Scholasticism would reach its peak in the 14th century. Though it would last until the 16th century, it would become regarded as old-fashioned. It would be criticized 
for its emphasis on sterile logic. It would be seen as rigid in its adherence to Aristotle. It would be associated with inflexibility, style over substance, and overly debating trivial matters. Of course, much of this criticism will be leveled by those who sought to replace the scholastics, the humanists. The humanists of the 14th century saw themselves as ushering in a new age, a rebirth, a renaissance of classical antiquity. Their focus will be on man, not God. Their tools will be grammar and rhetoric, not logic. And their thinking will branch out into science, philosophy, economics, history, politics, art, and literature. Before we explore humanism and its eventual impact on European society, we will make a slight detour. We will head to the world of Islamic scholars, whose efforts from the 9th to the 11th century provided the means for Europe to rediscover its classical past. As always, maps and supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. If you like this content, help support my work by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash I take history. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening. Music.